0: Welcome to the Radio Democracy podcast. I'm Evelyn Farkas.
1: I'm Jim
2: Lutus. And I'm Mark Jacobson.
0: We are three national security wonks who are deeply concerned about the state of democracy in America today and around the world. And so we decided to launch a podcast <laughs> to talk about democracy. And so every week we'll pick a new topic, a new kind of riff on democracy, share it with you. We'd love your thoughts, we'd love your feedback but mainly we want you to share our sense of urgency. So whatever time it is, wherever you are, this is Radio Democracy.
2: And and breaking news, even after a successful 4th of July, democracy is still at threat.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that our key takeaway from this week is that fireworks, not the same as a healthy democracy.
0: Right. And healthy is also a little bit overstated these days because we still haven't beaten this pandemic. The Delta variant is very much out there and there's a specter of additional variants if we can't get full herd immunity across the U.S. and across the world.
2: I think, uh, you know, one of the things that keeps jumping out at me, and and I just got back uh, from a trip to Florida where uh, it's as if COVID never happened. Uh, You know, of course, the governor there doesn't really think there should be any restrictions but but it's very clear that this is also politicized that you know like before if you're wearing a mask you must be a liberal democrat if you're not wearing a mask uh, you're a conservative trump supporter but we're seeing this with vaccines you know uh, three times as many cases right, uh, in areas right. that are red and, and that's just ridiculous this yeah. should not be politicized and and yeah at a deep level uh and at a, uh, it's a threat to democracy yeah. uh,
0: so so Mark, you were going to uh, introduce our topic for this week.
2: Yes, that's right. Uh, so again, I'm Mark Jacobson. And as you're aware, we at Radio Democracy have some concerns about democracy. What I want to talk about today is not whether democracy is a threat, but what specifically is threatening democracy in the U.S. How serious are those threats? And maybe some initial thoughts as to what to do about it. Now, to introduce this issue, I want to point to two pieces written in the wake of the 2020 election, and one very prescient piece written about seven years ago. Now writing in December 2020, uh, Zachary Roth from NYU's Brennan Center argued that there are five clear threats to democracy. First, a majority of Republican voters still believe, incorrectly, that the election of 2020 was rigged. Second, increased voting restrictions at the state level are making it harder for non-white voters Uh, to to actually vote. Jim, I think you raised this last week in the context of the failure of the Senate to pass uh, S-1. The third thing Roth raises is that gerrymandering could skew elections in many states for another decade. Uh, Fourth, there's a great potential for the Supreme Court to gut what remains of the Voting Rights Act, which arguably just happened on July 1st uh, with the Supreme Court decision in Arizona versus the DNC. Finally, there's been a failure to deal with the disenfranchisement of citizens in Washington, DC, Puerto Rico, as well as a host of problems with the Electoral College. And this can all lead to the potential for presidents who are regularly elected by an increasing minority of the population. In other words, we get presidents uh, who are not elected by the majority of the people and by uh, an increasingly smaller uh, group of our population. Now, there are two professors who've argued uh, something maybe a bit more optimistic, that there aren't five, but maybe just four deadly threats to American democracy. Uh, Political polarization, conflict over who belongs as a full member of the political community, rising economic equality. And that's something I don't think we discuss enough. Uh, And finally, the concentration of power in, in America's top leader in the presidency. Now, their particular concern is that while American democracy has dealt with these threats individually, so civil war, the Great Depression, uh, even something like Watergate, now we're in an era where these threats exist simultaneously and are threatening the very pillars of democracy, you know, free and fair elections, the rule of law, the idea of legitimate opposition, and of course, the integrity of civil rights. All right, so maybe that's not more optimistic, maybe it's even more pessimistic. But finally, I want to point back to something that uh, was written in 2014 by Professor Jared Diamond. Uh, some of the listeners may recall that he's the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Guns, Germs, and Steel. So Diamond writes that there are four great threats to American democracy. The loss of political compromise, especially rising levels of partisan nastiness. Uh, so think, again, again, cable TV, for example. Uh, the increasing restrictions on the right to vote, uh, similar to, to what the other authors have said. Uh, a growing gap between rich and poor, and most importantly, the decline of government investment in political, per- i sorry, in public purposes, uh, cries that anytime the government spends money uh, on infrastructure, on education, it's, it's socialism somehow, healthcare, uh, socialism. But what Diamond's concluding, I think here is unbelievably important, that all of this lack of investment in education, healthcare, research and development, infrastructure, it forces the U.S. into a position where we lose our competitive advantages. As we lose an educated workforce, we can't compete in the world economically. Now, what ties all these pieces together is that Biden's victory in in, uh, 2020 alone uh, does little to reduce the threat to democracy. These are ongoing problems, and you just look at how prescient these authors were about the Voting Rights Act in particular, that gives me great cause for concern. So uh, Jim, Evelyn, I, I ask you, are these authors right? Are these the only threats to democracy? Are these the most important threats to democracy? What's missing and what can we do about it?
1: Yes, and thank you for listening to Radio Democracy. No, I, look, I, the, <laughs> these these authors are, are rock stars, right? And it's I, I'm going to uh, be foolish if I say, if, if I really sort of take uh, too much exception to what they say. I think that their diagnostics are spot on but I also think they're a little bit incomplete. And this might be the historian in me uh, who says, well, where are the people? In fact, where are the leaders? And I remember Mm -hmm. some of Evelyn's uh, earlier scholarship about ethnic conflicts in the 1990s. uh, And I remember that the critical piece in all of these societies that collapsed in the aftermath of the Cold War wasn't simply ethnic fractures in their populations, it was the role of leaders who used those divisions for political gain. Is and there, I watch you know? I, I watch what frankly members of the GOP are doing in the United States right now. And I see people who are more concerned with gaining power by exploiting America's divisions than I see people interested in celebrating democracy. And I think that's missing from the criteria we've heard so far.
2: It's interesting. You don't have you know, you don't have anyone speaking out against uh, against the Mar- in the Republican Party speaking out against the Marjorie Taylor Greens. Everyone's sort of accepting the, the anti-Semitic associations of the, of the representative Gosar's. But is there anyone out there, Jim, who can transcend the, the two traditional political parties and be seen as someone who represents America and can speak for the goodness of the nation?
1: But but, but why? So so I mean, so, yeah, so like you're talking about like an Eisenhower or De Gaulle, right? Someone who's beyond beyond politics. But you know, frankly, where are the Republicans condemning the anti-democratic voices in their party? This, this is well. This there is, is
0: Liz Cheney
1: and <laughs> Adam Kinzinger,
0: right? Right.
1: So right. two. Well, two,
0: two is something,
1: right? You know, but but this is this is the issue for me: is that somehow or another, a entire political party in the United States has not just adopted the rhetoric of authoritarianism; they have adopted the the practices Tactics. of trying to reduce. The access to the vote, right? They are comfortable with saying, nope, only people who think like us can vote. And, and I got to tell you, the, the, the seeds of that anti-democratic sentiment uh, have been prevalent in American politics since the founding. But what's different is that you have an elite party that has suddenly, it seems, uh, by and large, with a couple of prominent exceptions, adopted that rhetoric and and seem to suggest that it's okay if we have to compromise on democracy if that's the price of us having political party well uh, political power
0: yeah i mean i think jim look if you look at i mean what what mark just read the zachary roth you know threats to democracy republican is in the first one the state voting restrictions is also republicans doing it okay gerrymandering is bipartisan the Supreme Court gutting the Voting Rights Act again, that that was a case that was decided against the Democratic Party. Um, the, the disenfranchisement of citizens in D.C. and Puerto Rico, largely Democrats. So he's also- Largely
1: Republican. I mean, the Republicans are preventing Puerto Rico and yes, D.C. Uh, but, from. Getting, but the people yeah.
0: who are being disenfranchised are largely Democrats. And right. so the point being, my point being that actually, you're just saying, you're just using more direct words to say what- Roth was saying he's not he's not pointing to the Republican Party but actually all you know four out of the five of the things that he mentions as threats to democracy are actually being are actually being right. actively um you know executed by Republicans not Democrats right and, 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 this, I, I,
1: and, and I, I think that we've got to name it I, I think that we're past the point in American politics where we can pretend that both parties celebrate democracy because they clearly don't
0: right this is and,
1: what's so painful I you know i every once in a while i think well, you
2: know god is, is there some way to have an alternative to the democratic party is there some way the republican party can reform um you know, I, I grew up feeling more aligned with the republican party than the democratic party you know it hasn't been that way for about 20 years now but still now every time i look at it where is the party of a strong national defense um where's the party of conservative fiscal policy no this is the party of uh, trying to increase the gap between rich and poor. This is the party that wants to restrict your right to vote if you're not a person who's white. Uh, I, mean, I mean, call wait, it what it wait, is.
1: Where is, the par- just, where is the party of the soaring rhetoric of Reagan, right? And That's the commitment the to principles done. of Eisenhower. Like, like <laughs> these, This is, this is the, the Republican party that I may not have been a part of, but I had to respect.
0: Okay, so another thing that was left out Um, I think, is the um, danger of technology in the wrong hands, which, of course, we dealt with extensively in our first podcast. But I really do think that these authors are missing that, that part of the equation, that if you have technology, even in the hands of Democrats, if you don't have the right values underpinning it, the right rules in place to essentially guide the use of this technology, we could end up with our democracy shrinking and eventually being effectively overturned through yeah, th- other means, through right. surveillance, etc.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, Evelyn. I, I also would add that even though uh, Diamond gets to it a little bit, education, uh, critical thinking skills, um, right. really, really needs to be up there. I'm not saying it's a solution to everything. Sometimes. Uh, it may seem that way, but it's a start. Without it, uh, you have no chance of addressing the competitiv- competitiveness issues. You have no chance of dealing with these larger problems of democracy if people can't think.
0: Well, it's, it's not just education, it's science. <laughs> so that those two things together need to be um, re, uh, re- reinforced in our society and they need to take on the central role that they had in the past and we need leaders to help make that happen. So that's really kind of summing it all up, I guess well, it's, we need good, good leadership based on solid values and respect for education and science because without education and science, you have the danger of an uninformed democracy, uh, ill-informed um, voters and um, an autocracy.
1: Can I give you one other thing that I think is missing? From just our society in general, so we 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 began the sort of sort of joking about how a fireworks celebration isn't the same as a healthy democracy, right? I don't think that we and I say we it's the collective we it's the it's the way the media talks about these things, it's the way uh, scholars study these things, the way we teach these things in our schools. I don't think we celebrate democracy enough, right? Democracy is an old idea, right? We trace its roots back to ancient Greece. Ancient Rome, we know that the Iroquois Confederacy had a form of democracy, right? This is, this is an old way of governing that says that the people who are governed ought to have a say in the decisions that affect their lives. We don't celebrate that enough. We don't, we don't, we don't put that at the top of our civic festivities uh, in a way that reinforces for everyone that democracy is not worth dis- just discussing. But it's worth fighting for, and it's worth living.
0: Well, Jim, that is some heavy stuff, and I am pretty confident we'll touch on some of those issues in future podcasts. Um, but we've come to the time in our podcast when each of us gets a chance to kind of throw out an article um, that we read this week that pertains to democracy, either something depressing or something uplifting. Um, I will go first. I'll take the prerogative of the host uh, of, of this week's host. Um, to say that the story that I found in this case upsetting was one that uh, an NPR writer um, posted and of course they also had a, video, a radio, um, uh, radio cast on it. Um, Tom Driesbach was the author, but he was talking about a guy named Alan Hostetter who was one of the insurrectionists who was there on January 6th uh, on the attack, the riot on, on the Capitol, the attack on our democracy. And he's been now indicted um, for conspiracy. Uh, And this author had followed this this man, this guy, Alan Hostetter. And the NPR journalist went back to kind of see whether he had anything new to say now that he'd been indicted after the uh, attempted insurrection. And the guy said to him some disturbing things. And this was why it caught my attention. Um, He basically said, watch out. More is coming, in essence. He said, "The world's about to change, my friend. Watch the news; things are about to get real interesting." So, and then he sent a kind of an ap- apocalyptic um, video to the reporter. The reason why I find this disturbing is obviously we all and the media seems to be creating this impression that January sixth and the insurrection and the and the and the physical threat to our democracy and to our leadership is behind us and it is very much not behind us as long as these insurrectionists and these movements are out there so that's yeah, my story Mark, know, what do you got
1: well oh, no go we got, let's talk about that a little bit okay because,
0: sorry you <laughs> know,
2: oh, oh, here,
1: I yeah you know so so you know i i keep coming back the, the reasoning by historical analogy is always a little perilous uh but i do find some some reason for pause. At the end of the day, I think that what we're seeing uh, rise in the United States right now is a neo-fascist movement, uh, where violence is part of the equation and the threat to democracy is very real. And so when I think about previous successful fascist revolutions, I also, my mind wanders back to the beer hall push. And because that was not Taken seriously enough, despite the fact that people like Adolf Hitler went to prison for a time, uh, because it wasn't prosecuted, because it wasn't taken seriously enough in German, the German body politic, it ultimately gave life and birth to the, you know the, the 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 rise of the National Socialist movement and the National Socialist Party, the Nazi Party in Germany. Yeah,
0: if just, we don't, just, can if I we don't prosecute
1: if we don't if we don't punish people for what happened on January sixth, our democracy is in peril.
0: Yeah, I agree. Sorry, I just want to interject just for our listeners that the Beer Hall Putsch happened in 1923. It was basically an attempted coup d'etat by, uh, you know, overturning of the state by uh, Adolf Hitler.
2: Yes. And if you want to use another misplaced historical analogy, just remember it. it's only after the failed Beer Hall push that you get the real danger, the rise to power uh, about a decade later. Of course, there's a jail term in between. So I might be OK with that sort of. Yeah,
1: 1932, going. Hitler is, 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 is named chancellor. Hey, so my my big issue of the week, and I'm not going to pinpoint a specific story, but a big issue, and it's sort of in this vein, uh, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, has has taken back to the, the to his public rallies uh, where he is perpetuating the lie uh, that he somehow won the election, that Joe Biden is somehow an illegitimate president, and he's even celebrating uh, the martyrdom in his mind of one of the rioters who was killed by uh, either Capitol Police or Secret Service. It's not particularly clear. Uh, Ashley Babbitt, in the uh, in the uh, you,
2: you mean insurgent, not the,
1: exactly. Uh, and and so you know, the, perpetuating this myth, perpetuating. Uh, this 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 verbal attack on our democracy uh, is really dangerous stuff uh, for the future of democracy in the United States.
2: Now look, look what happened last time Trump was at rallies yelling uh, for for people to uh, you know to storm the Capitol. We had an insurrection. So I, I think you know Evelyn talking about the, the dangers that are out there. This is a real danger. Uh, this is a uh, you know an ex president who doesn't understand. What happened when he was president? And or, or does well, he
1: understand? Yeah, this this is the question, right? Because I, for a long time I've been willing to accept the idea that there were that there were a lot of well-meaning, well-intentioned uh, uh, members of the Republican Party who uh, just were really seeing this as a set of tactics. But increasingly, it's hard to ignore the fact that they are willing to adopt a broad swath of anti-democratic norms and laws to restrict the vote. To control who can vote, because I, you know, is it possible that they've just decided they can't win at the ballot box, and therefore, the upside is to abandon the ballot box,
2: well, as we discussed for you know, the previous twenty minutes. Yeah, I mean, they see that as the approach most of the time. I can see things that way, but but sometimes I, I still think that Trump, in the end, is always about what keeps him on the front page of the news. Therefore, what strengthens his brand and brings him in money, and that's all that he is about. Even if, you know, the GOP and those that follow him maybe have a more nefarious agenda.
0: I don't. I wouldn't let him off the hook. He was perfectly happy to ha- see police officers be impaled by by flagpoles by his followers. I mean, yeah. he wasn't apologetic. We know that, you know, from the from the phone call he had with uh, with Kevin McCarthy, the 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 speaker at the time, or. Was he? No, he was no longer the speaker. Majority. Anyway, the majority, the majority of the leader. Leader. Now you got me
2: screwed up. He, he, you yeah. know, he
0: he he was he was he wasn't having any remorseful thoughts. Anyway, our time is low, so Mark, give us what what were your uh, what's your story?
2: All right, so uh, what's my story? Um, well, Jim talked about neo-fascists, so I think it's only fair that we talk about the neo-Stalinists. And um, you now I the article that I saw was by a professor of history at Yale, Tim Snyder, and he argues that. The new laws restricting the discussion of race in American schools have some very dire precedents in Europe, especially in terms of what were known as memory laws. In essence, essence, laws designed to revise or even censor the way we interpret the past. Uh, Now, right now, what are we talking about? Uh, Laws designed to prohibit the teaching of critical race theory. Uh, Just for definitional sake, critical race theory is a theory that racism is not just the product of individual prejudice, but that racism is embedded in American society and its legal systems in order to uphold the supremacy of white persons. Uh, Now, the memory laws that Snyder's talking about um, arose in Europe in a moment of cultural panic when politicians were worried about revisionist teaching. So in the time of Stalin, the revisionists were people who wrote critically about him um, or honestly, about the Second World War, that it's not just the Germans we were fighting, but, oh, by the way, Stalin you know, killed 20 million people as well. Um, now, the revisionists are people who write about race. And I, I don't know, as a historian, as an educator, are white students uncomfortable when discussing the racist institutions in the U.S., slavery, for example, and the ways which our founding documents set, set this up? Of course they are. Uh, but as Snyder says, uh, history is not therapy, and discomfort is part of growing up. We have to understand our past. We can't censor it, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable. Now, let me be very clear. This doesn't mean critical race theory is right as a theory. I happen to think it's wrong. I think it's overly reductionist, uh, but there's no reason it shouldn't be studied, especially at the collegiate level. In fact, uh, just the other day, there was some pushback from Senator Tom Cotton, who's worried that they're teaching critical race theory at the US Air Force Academy. Now, just to get a bit wonky here, Students at the Air Force Academy, in particular, should be critical of any theory. After all, it's the original air power theorists who gave us carpet bombing of civilians and, and firebombing, and, and you know, and we've overthrown that and now have a different focus. But you know, whether it's a belief that there's nothing inherently racist about the two-thirds compromise uh, and the founding documents, or we should look exclusively at 1619 to understand our, our nation's founding principles. Of course, you should question any type of theory, you know, and bottom line, you can be critical of our nation without absorbing without the saying that t- people today are to blame for all this. Let's, let's just discuss it.
1: Just to the, I know we're out of time and, and poor everyone's trying to, trying to wrap it up, but I just want to say one thing, the, the key phrase in your, in your, in your explanation there, Mark was cultural panic. The whole conversation about critical race theory in this country is cultural panic that's fostered by Fox News.
2: And it's being politicized yeah. and, and made into a partisan weapon. And, and that's just doubling down on, on, on the wrong approach.
0: And, and also, I don't like this kind of group identity thing. You know, there's no reason why white people should feel worse than black people. Today's white people sitting in a classroom talking about slavery. And our past and our history. It's
2: horrible, Nobody but it does today doesn't is
0: responsible mean... for the history of the past. Yeah. So it, it's yeah.
1: No, it's okay. True. But we but we, we are responsible a, for what we teach and the way we talk about those things today. Absolutely. absolutely. Exactly.
0: And and listen, the bottom line is that no democracy can survive if, if we don't have access to facts, information, the truth, and the ability to debate them, to unearth new details and to rediscover you know, old truths. But the really bad news is that we're out of time. This is Radio Democracy. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please join us next week. Tell all your friends on Facebook, Twitter, call your mom, and thank you again.